We'd like to welcome everybody to Bible study. We know these are trying times, apparently, but we're going to get into the word of the Lord and minister to you, despite the fact that we're not able to gather. But I do know that God has a word for all of us. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you this evening to turn in your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter number seven. I want to deal with the question concerning the church. Is it a Jewish church or Gentile church? So would you simply call it Jewish or Gentile? Which one is it? So in the book of Acts chapter number 7, I'd like to read verse 38. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him in Mount Sinai with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. Now, you might wonder why any of this would be important, and the reason it is important is because we're getting close to Resurrection Sunday. And whenever we come into this time of the year, there are always these debates about how should we approach Easter. Should we consider it under its Jewish name, Pesach, or should we focus on just how the Christians look at it? And then we have all kinds of different uh, feasts that we know that are under the Jewish calendar. But I think in order to understand the church, we need to pay attention to a number of different things. So as we have it in the book of Acts in chapter 7, as we just read, notice then that it's called the church in the wilderness. The word church in the Greek comes from a word that means ecclesia, a group of people that have been called out of a larger company of people in order to function privately as they've been set apart. And so when we think of the children of Israel, let's not forget that it was Moses who was raised up by God in order to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt, which the Lord did by using Moses with the rod of God in his hands. And we understand that he had a miraculous uh, deliverance at his birth, which, of course, typified the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The reason they were called the church in the wilderness is because they were in the wilderness for over 40 years. And when it speaks of the angel, that is simply signifying that their deliverance and their maintenance in the wilderness was supernatural. God had a messenger with them that oversaw their development as God turned them into a holy nation a chosen people, and a royal priesthood. So in the beginning, the church in the wilderness was entirely Jewish. By Jewish, I mean they were ethnically descendants of Abraham. When I use the word Gentile later on, I'm referring to any person or group of people that are not ethnically Jewish. So the church in the wilderness was a Jewish congregation of people, God committed to them his word. So it's through the precious word of God that we have the witness of the scriptures that speak of this deliverance. We also have from the word of God this opportunity of deliverance. Once the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt and brought into the wilderness, God had designed for the kingdom to be given to Israel. So from the wilderness, they went into the promised land. The promised land was important because the promise was given 
to Abraham. In the promised land, God established kings. These kings very often had a prophet that would declare the mind and the will of God to the king. Moses had begun earlier to write the scriptures to inscribe them so that every succeeding generation would have the mind and the will and the wishes of God written down for them. And according to Deuteronomy 17, I believe, the king is supposed to have before him the word of God and copy, of, uh, copy out the law for himself. So from the promised land, one generation after another produced all of these different tribes, multitudes of people that overspread all of the promised land that originally had been given to the descendants of Jacob. Once Jesus came into this world, he himself was a descendant of one of these tribes. Matthew tells us that Jesus descended from the tribe of Judah. Now, all of this background is important because I want you to see that the foundation of the church in the wilderness, and that is what the early apostles considered the nation of Israel, it was Jewish. It was Jewish throughout. Anybody could join the church in the wilderness. If you were from another nation, another culture, another religion, like Ruth, you could then become a follower of Jehovah and then enter into the church. Well, once Jesus came, he and his followers, of course, were Jewish. Each, each of them were circumcised. And Jesus came, died on the cross, bore our sins. He nailed the Old Testament liturgy and all of that to the cross so that it is, it is of no binding value upon us today. So as a Christian, I don't have to keep Jewish feasts. Now, you need to know that because this time of the year, everybody or many people are going to run around here wanting to celebrate all of these different feasts. And they want to explain every item that took place when the Jewish people sat down at the meal table. Now, I don't have a problem with that so long as the explanations point to the Lord Jesus Christ. But if someone can sit down with you at an Easter celebration and never hear about the gospel, never hear of Jesus' resurrection, then I have to ask, what is the point of it all anyhow? So Jesus comes, he establishes the church, he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. His disciples were Jewish. The scripture says no other foundation can anybody lay other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That means... Again, the foundation of the church was Jewish. Jesus was a Jewish man. He called and appointed Jewish apostles. But then once he died and was raised from the dead, he came up out of the grave, King of kings, Lord of lords, and he said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. That includes the Gentile nations, people that are not ethnically descended from the Lord Jesus Christ. It took at least a decade for the apostles to begin this movement towards the rest of the nation. And it was because of persecution that the apostles finally spread out going into different countries. So according to the Bible, in the book of Acts, the day of Pentecost occurred. The Holy Spirit was poured out. Once he was poured out, 120 people began to speak with other tongues. The scripture then says that they preached in Jerusalem, they met in Jerusalem, they fellowshiped in Jerusalem, they went from house to house. We're then told because of persecution, 
people began to go in different directions. Philip had gone down to Samaria, preached the gospel, cast out devils, healed the sick, wonderful things occurred. But by chapter 10, God understood that Peter and the apostles had not gone as far as they should go in taking the gospel to the nations. They had only gone basically to Samaria and all throughout Israel. Now, other people from the day of Pentecost had taken the gospel back to their nation, and other people who heard the gospel took it, but these apostles had not. So the Lord comes to Peter in a vision and tells him that he needs to ensure that he makes it to other people. And the way God does that, he gives them a vision and then sends them to the house of an Italian man. It's at this point that the gospel in the book of Acts goes outside of the confines of Jewish districts. And it is an organized and designed mission to take the gospel throughout the world. So here's the first question. When they went into the nations of the world around the Mediterranean, did they go there preaching the good news of Jewish religion? Did they go there preaching the good news of the feasts of Israel? No. They went and they preached the kingdom of God. They told the story of how Jesus came, how Jesus died. They told the story of how he was resurrected, ascended to heaven, and as God, he sits on the right hand of the Father's throne. With this knowledge, then, we can understand how it is that the Gentiles began to multiply in number or in greater numbers than even the Jewish people where all the Jewish people were confined to one area, and the gospel was given to them first, according to Romans chapter 1, verses 15, 16, and 17. The disciples went into the uttermost parts of the earth, preaching the gospel in Africa, Far East, Southeast Asia, Central Asia, going into Northern Europe, telling folks about the king. Multitudes of people throughout the Roman Empire were hearing about this, so lives were being changed. It was so powerful that decades later, the Apostle Paul could say in the book of Acts, chapter 28, as he was under house arrest, verse 28, be it known unto you, therefore, that salvation is sent unto the Gentiles, and they will hear it. Now, he had already told us in chapter 13, verse 46, that since the Jewish people rejected the gospel when he came to the synagogues, he turned to the, the Gentiles. He didn't lose faith in believing that God would save Jewish people. But he knew that apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, they could not understand or enjoy salvation. So in Romans 10, the scripture tells us that Paul begins by praying, and he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. So Paul is saying that the Jewish people of his day were not saved from their sins. You say, well, pastor, hold on. I thought that the Jewish people had a covenant with God through Abraham. They do. They received the promises through Abraham. The promise was made to Abraham. But let's never forget, it's through Abraham that Jesus came of the seed of Abraham. So that now the promise came to Abraham, but the blessing comes upon the Gentiles. Any Jewish person who receives Jesus Christ as their savior, can enjoy all the benefits and the blessings of salvation. Any Gentile who becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ can enjoy the blessings that came upon the Jewish nation because of Abraham. So it's a mutual thing. 
So Paul's perspective then was that they needed to become a Christian. So then here's another question. Well, who today is truly Jewish? According to Romans chapter 2, you can see where Paul says in the final two verses here, he says a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of God. In the Old Testament, circumcision was confined to little boys. That means that in the physical flesh of a young man, he had reason to glory or to boast because he could say, I've been circumcised and the promises of Abraham are coming to me directly. Paul comes along and he begins to explain the death of Jesus on the cross. According to Colossians chapter 2, when Jesus hung there between earth and heaven, he bore our sins and our sicknesses, but he also nailed to the cross with him the old ordinances, the old liturgy, Many of the old teachings of the Old Testament no longer are binding. You say, well, pastor, what kind of things are no longer binding? The food laws. You can eat whatever you want now. Paul says all meat is to be received if it's received with prayer and thanksgiving. The dress codes. I'm so glad that as a pastor, I don't have to walk around in those long, lavish gowns that the Old Testament priests had to wear. Not to mention the fact that in the Old Testament, they had some pretty strict and stern laws. If you had a teenage boy that was disrespectful to the parents, it said you could take him outside the city and everybody could have a rock party. And they'd stone the little guy. I'm glad I don't live under the Old Covenant. It said in the Old Testament, they wouldn't even suffer someone who was involved with witchcraft to live. I'm glad we don't live under the Old Covenant. The penal system, in many ways, was also set aside. So now as a Christian then, I'm not obligated to try to go to Israel three times a year to offer up sacrifices for myself or for my family. Jesus Christ became the true sacrifice on the cross, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And if I know that, that'll deliver me from the idea of believing that I have to participate in all kinds of Jewish functions today that may not necessarily glorify God. Why, why is this important? There is a massive movement in America right now where people are working very hard to establish all kinds of Jewish traditions in Christian churches. I want to emphasize, in the Old Testament, foundation of the church in the wilderness was Jewish. When he came to Christ, he was Jewish. The apostles that he chose were Jewish. So the writers of our New Testament were Jewish. But he sent the disciples into the uttermost parts of the earth to the non-Jewish people. And for the most part, the non-Jewish people outnumber the Jewish people. We are all connected through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is through the promises that have come through Christ that make us all Christian. 
I, I angered somebody one time. I was asking them about their, uh, their faith and their religion. They said, well, I'm a, I'm a Messianic Jew. I said, well, I'm a Messianic Gentile. They said, well, I've never heard of that. I said, I've never heard of a Messianic Jew. I said, I've heard about it in different countries, but I've never seen it in the Bible. I said, the Bible says in the book of Acts, they were first called Christians. So to be like Christ. And the Christ of Scripture that now is at the right hand of the throne is one that cares about all nations, who wants us to reach every tribe with the gospel, and he wants us to go into some difficult places. A good friend of mine just returned from South Sudan. He was telling me today about how he was ministering in these refugee camps. He said, Brother Darrell, in this one camp there were over 17,000 people, and he said they lived in these mud clay tenements, no running water, no electricity. But he said, every day that I preached, more than 200 people out there gave their hearts to the Lord. He said, the Muslims came into the church for the first time in their life as Christian. And the people stood up and applauded because they had turned from Islam to come to know God. He told me one story after another of people out there in Sudan, one after another, eyes that had been blind, had been opened by the power of God. Folks, I'm telling you, we serve a God that wants us to believe that Jesus has sent us to the nations of the world. To be a Christian means to be like Christ. Well then, if we have Gentiles now that are multiplying in the body of Christ, is there anything in Scripture that tells us about that? Absolutely. In Ephesians chapter number 3, you'll notice that Paul is unfolding the mystery of Gentile inclusion into the covenant of God. And it says, beginning with verse number 5, this teaching or belief or revelation, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, but is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Holy Spirit, Here's the revelation that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. There are more than 200 nations in the world today. I have no idea how many different languages and dialects there are. I can tell you right now there are a lot of tribes in this world. I preach to a lot of people, travel to a lot of different places. And folks, we have to be encouraged to know that in the time frame in which we're living, we are still actively fulfilling prophecy. Joel said in the last days, God would pour out of his spirit upon all flesh. He said, your sons and daughters would prophesy. Sons and daughters, not just men, sons and daughters, male and female. He said they old and young would dream dreams and have all kinds of visions. Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost, used that same verse of scripture in order to describe what had taken place when the people were filled with the Holy Spirit and born again. And then at the same time, 3,000 people were saved. So this is the beauty of it. Peter and the apostles had become believers in the Lord while he was here. They later were filled with the Holy Spirit. Then 3,000 people were saved and then baptized in water. Then later on, an additional 5,000 were added to the church. So what are you saying? I'm saying every time someone puts their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ, 
It's in fulfillment of prophecy. Every time someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, it's in fulfillment of prophecy. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 17, the scripture says Jesus was healing people, and it was in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3, 4, and 5. That means that every time Jesus healed somebody, it fulfilled a prophecy. And we as his body, and he as the head, anytime God works through us to answer a prayer for a child, for a middle-aged person, for the elderly, every time someone who is ill is made whole, it's in fulfillment of prophecy. So I'm saying to you that as a church, we really shouldn't get caught up in the ethnicity of people, whether it's Jewish or Norwegian or African or whether it's Asian. The only thing that should matter to us is he or she Christian. If that becomes the determining factor in your life, you'll be able to fellowship with anybody all over the earth. But if you don't let that happen, it'd be hard to fellowship and you'll be bound to the degree that you can't fellowship with people that aren't like you. We've got a lot of that in the body of Christ today. If you're not Lutheran, can't fellowship with the Methodists. Because if you're Methodist, you can't fellowship with the Episcopalians. Episcopalians can't come near the Presbyterians. Presbyterians dare not get, in, get anywhere near a Pentecostal. And the Pentecostal have to do everything they can to avoid people that are Baptist. So all of this and the other 40,000 denominations that are divided because of personal beliefs bring me back to one essential truth, and that is that Christ is soon to come. With him coming, he's coming back for a Christian church, a church that's just like him. One One other thing I'll add And it's over here in Colossians. And it says in chapter number 2, I've already referred to it before, but I'll say something more about it here in verse, verse number 16. Because of what Christ did at Calvary, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances, spoiling the powers and principalities, verse 16, let no man judge you in meat or drink or in respect of a holy day or the new moon or of the Sabbath days. My belief in what Christ accomplished at Calvary is what delivers me from the condemnation of people who say to me, you ought not eat pork. Oh, folks, if you don't like bacon, pass it all over here. I'll take it. I'll eat it for you. If you don't like short ribs, baby back ribs, give them all to me, pile them up in front of me. I'll pour barbecue sauce on them and eat them until nobody else is going to want them. I love them. I don't feel bad about it at all. A lot of people in this world, they tell you, well, God told the people under the old covenant they cannot eat swine because it's bad for them. Well, you're partly true. He did tell them they couldn't eat swine, but he never in that Bible said that it's bad for them. If the dietitian has told you there are certain foods condemned in the Old Testament because they're bad for your body, maybe the dietitian is right that they're bad for your body, but that's not what God said. God simply said you couldn't eat it because he made the declaration. But there are other foods that God said you could eat, locusts, grasshoppers. I don't see a lot of people eating those, and those are lawful under the Old Covenant. But since we've been delivered from that Old Testament law, I think we should stick with the scriptures that tell us we can eat what we want as long as it's received with thanksgiving and prayer. And so when I think of the holy day of the week, for me, the great day of the week is the Lord's Day. For somebody else, it might be Friday. Somebody else, it may be Tuesday. 
Paul said in Romans that we should not give too much allegiance to a particular day. There are some people say, I just think worship should just be on Saturday. That's what Seventh-day Adventists believe. And then you have Christians in the Middle East that think it just ought to be on Friday evening or Saturday. Some of those of Jewish background that are Christian. But when I lived in the Middle East, the holiday or the weekend was Thursday and Friday. So we went to church on Friday. When I lived in Israel, we went to church Saturday morning. Here in America and other places, we go to church on Sunday. But I can't stop there because I'm preaching Sunday morning. I'm preaching Sunday night. I'm ministering Monday night. I'm teaching Tuesday night. I'm in church Wednesday night. And then I'm in church Friday night. And very often teaching Saturday morning. So it's not about a day. I cannot allow people to pull me into bondage over when I worship God. If I worship God on a Tuesday morning and that was the only day of worship I had, I'd still have a good conscience because God is bigger than a day. And then finally, he said, don't let anybody judge you with respect to these new moons. Every year, there are people who, whose calendars are determined by the moon. So this is how they determine what their feast days are going to be. Some Jewish folks are this way. Some Buddhists are this way. Some Hindus are this way. All of the Muslim calendars operate this way. But as a Christian, nobody's going to judge me and say, I ought not be doing this or doing that because it's a half moon or a three-quarter moon. Or because it's a full moon, I need to be nervous about what I'm doing. All I'm telling you is that when we look at the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been delivered, we've been set free. And the Bible says, now that you've been set free, don't be entangled by the affairs of this world and don't go back into the bondage of the Old Testament. Read Acts chapter 15. Read Galatians 2, 3, and 4. There's no need to return to the very thing God redeemed us out of. Egypt may look good on some days, but folks, I can tell you that promised land is a whole, whole better experience if you let God do what he wants to do. And you'll find the blessing of God will be upon you. So this is Bible study for this week, and I'm so glad we were able to come and minister to you. I'm so looking forward to us getting back together again and being in physical fellowship. I want to hug your neck and shake your hands because God is a powerful powerful God. We'll see you next time. God bless. Praise God.